Hi, this is Layla calling from Singapore, where preparations are underway for next week's U.S.-North Korea summit. Hey, Layla, that was a very apt timestamp because we are going to be talking about North Korea. This podcast was recorded at 3.15 p.m. on Thursday, June 7th. Things may have changed by the time you hear it. Okay, here's the show. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast, and we're here with our weekly roundup of the biggest political stories. We'll talk North Korea, trade, and tariffs. Plus, Republicans met this morning to find a consensus on immigration policy, but the immigration infighting continues. And the defending Super Bowl champs, the Philadelphia Eagles, were supposed to visit the White House, but Trump uninvited them. I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. I'm Ron Elbing, editor-correspondent. I'm Mara Liason, national political correspondent. And I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. All right, so let's start with the press conference that just happened. President Trump was with the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. They were talking about the preparations going on for this North Korean summit. And what struck me is there were sort of two big, I would say, news nuggets that I found really intriguing. One was when the suggestion came out that President Trump would meet with the North Korean leader at the White House if, quote, things went well. But he also seemed at the same time willing to walk away from things. I mean, Mar, where does this sort of leave us in this point? Is he trying to, again, lower expectations? Well, I think he's been lowering expectations for quite a while. He's talked about this would be just a first meeting. At one point, he called it a get-to-know-you session. He said that, that it probably will take many meetings. But he also does keep up this refrain that he thinks it'll be very successful. And, of course, today he said he'd even be willing to invite Kim Jong-un to Washington if the talks went well. And don't forget, quite a while ago, I think he said that he'd invite the North Korean leader to America and give him a big, juicy hamburger. No, I didn't even remember that bit. So it seems like the expectations are constantly changing. Well, no, I think they're going in one direction, which is they're getting lower. And um, he said the other day he didn't want to talk about maximum pressure anymore because we're getting along so well. Of course, today in the press conference, he said that's still our policy. That's something that Japan cares a lot about. It doesn't want to see the U.S. back off from those sanctions or cut a deal with North Korea that would protect the U.S. from long-range missiles but leave Japan vulnerable to North Korea's short-range missiles. Ron, you have some great, I would say, historical sense for us on <laughs> the fact that this we have been presented as being extremely historical in nature. In fact, there was even, I think, a question to at the press conference about this idea. And this is constantly the refrain we hear from the Trump administration about this. Even if it doesn't go well, this is in historic in itself of just the meeting happening. Well, the Korean War goes back to 1950, and it has never actually formally ended. We've only had a ceasefire, if you will. We've had a kind of agreement to stop fighting, and North Korea and South Korea have remained more or less at each other's throats uh, for over 65 years. Uh, this, is, this is an extraordinary relic, if you will, of the first half of the 20th century. And of course, it would be enormously historic to put an end to that, to in some sense or another reunite the Korean Peninsula, and of course, to denuclearize this confrontation. All of those things are marvelous goals and aims. But among the things that Abe was trying to bring to the fore today is a reminder that there are a lot of interests here for Japan that are not necessarily perfectly aligned with those for the United States. We've gotten some of uh, the hostages back that uh, the North Koreans had taken, American citizens. But what about all the people who were abductees from Japan back over decades, Uh, people who had been taken 
uh, by the North Koreans for a variety of reasons uh, off of the Japanese islands and never returned. And we don't even know exactly how many there are. You hear everything from uh, scores, dozens, and maybe scores to hundreds of these people. But uh, the Japanese consider that to be an absolute necessity for any kind of real normalization of relations uh, in that part of the world. And Mara, Abe did talk about the Japanese abductees today. Yes, I thought that what was interesting about that is, first of all, that's an easy thing for them both to talk about. And it's an easy thing for Donald Trump to promise Abe, yes, of course, I'm going to press hard for this, Mm -hmm. because it's a really important issue for Japan. What Abe refused to talk about and said he couldn't talk about, even though they had discussed it in private, were all the other issues, how Japan feels that the U.S. and other countries should approach the entire issue of the denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and what would be the trade-offs there. That, to me, is the real fraught issue in this conversation. Will, will, what is Donald Trump willing to give up? Does Was he willing to reduce the level of U.S. troops on the peninsula? Is he willing to settle for a freeze? There's been no indication so far that North Korea is willing to give up its nuclear weapons. And as a matter of fact, Remember that big letter, kind of the size of a publisher's clearinghouse oh, check, yes. that um, <laughs> that uh, the North Korean official presented to Donald Trump last week. He was the president was asked today at the press conference what was in the letter because it was so large. He said, "Well, it was just a nice greeting, warm message. I'm looking forward to meeting with you." Like one of those oversized Valentine's yeah, Day yeah. cards. <laughs> so both of these men are now going to go on to Canada for the G7 meetings and. You know, I don't know, I'll be candid, too much about what's going to be on the agenda there for the G7 meetings. But what I have found remarkably fascinating are the reports that there is a desire for other world leaders to join together and pressure Donald Trump around trade. Do you have a sense of whether that will resonate, Mara, and, and the fact well, that I don't think it's going to move the president, but I think they're going to try. And they've been trying. They're horrified. They're shocked. They're appalled. They're infuriated, <laughs> whatever adjective you yeah. want to come up with, that the United States president, the leader of the free world, the country that helped write the rules of, um, you know, international trade cooperation and order uh, has decided based on national security grounds to declare that our allies Selling us steel is somehow a national security threat. That's the reasoning that he's used to put tariffs on the EU uh, and other of our allies on steel and aluminum. So they have implored him, begged him not to do this. There are other tensions. He pulled the U.S. out of the Iran deal. That's something they wanted to stay in. He pulled the U.S. out of the Paris Climate Agreement. They wanted to stay in. So there's a lot of tensions. And some people have said it's the G6 plus one or G7 minus one. That's how much of an outlier the Europeans are now seeing Donald Trump as. But even that pressure of all of them joining up together, right, against him, because I I feel like we've seen these individual points of criticism, right, whether it's a phone call between Justin Trudeau and Donald Trump. But when you have six of them all together coming up with sort of a uniform platform against the president of the United States, you don't think that that exerts any pressure on him? No, I don't. They already came out with a communique where they, in very strong language, disagreed with his what they consider to be protectionist moves. And um, no, what what? 
what leverage do they have? I mean, the other thing is Europe has its own divisions. Europe is having a lot of problems. Look at all of the pressures against the EU, Brexit, and the new Italian anti-Euro government. So I don't, I don't see the European countries figuring out some successful way to change Donald Trump's mind. And also, we always have to ask ourselves, how is this going to play on television? What is it going to look like to the supporters of Donald Trump in the United States? It's going to look like Donald Trump against the world. Donald Trump, America first president, saying, we have our interests and you have disrespected us and I'm going to stand up for our interests. Whether or not that's justified, whether or not that plays well on the international stage, whether or not it ultimately pursues a greater America and its interests in the long run, all of that needs to be set aside for the moment when we consider how will Donald Trump's supporters see that particular dynamic. And I suspect that they're going to think it looks pretty good. They're going to think that this is Donald Trump doing exactly what he promised when they voted for him in 2016. But, you know, every time, Ron, he thrills his supporters, he loses someone or or, or fails to get someone else that he could convince. That that's, is... that's the whole, his whole strategy of firing up his base. He's gotten them more and more ardent, but he hasn't expanded his coalition. So, Sue, talk to us a little bit about that, right? Because to Mara's point, it is not as if this isolationist trade policy has entirely resonated here at home or even with arguably members of Congress. You know, on this issue, I'm not sure that it is one that really fires up the base. I do think that to to this element of people that are Trump supporters, no matter what, I think Ron's right, that they agree with him. and, And this is him keeping his promises, right? This is him negotiating better trade deals. But trade is still the one area where I think not just Republicans on Capitol Hill, but Republican voters who like Trump are still very willing to criticize him. You know, this the, the recent decisions he made over tariffs with Mexico and Canada and the EU has leaders like Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and House Speaker Paul Ryan on record saying that they oppose him. Uh, I think Mara was exactly right that people that are looking at their congressional majorities uh, in places like Iowa and the Dakotas and the border states and Texas, uh, farm states where they export a lot of their products to places like Canada and Mexico, are really nervous. And if you want to, if you want to know sort of a, a very politically astute voter in this country, talk to farmers. Hmm. They really understand this economic policy and what it means for them. And and the the fear that a lot of Republicans have is that they have this story to tell about their tax cuts in a booming economy. And do these tariffs have a counter economic effect that mitigates the tax cuts and the economic growth that kind of takes away the story they're trying to tell in the midterm elections? And, you know, there are people that for steel manufacturers and aluminum manufacturers in the U.S., this is great. But there are a lot more companies that buy steel than make steel. Every little manufacturing business has to buy steel from somewhere. And it's guess what? It's getting more expensive. And, and the and the thing that Sue just said about, you know, he promised to negotiate better trade deals. He hasn't actually negotiated any better trade deals right. yet. But what he has done, kind of the bigger context of that, he promised to give a, the finger to the elites and to all those foreign countries who he says are ripping us off. So as a general cultural moment, I think his hardcore supporters will like this. But if it has economic effects between now and November, you know, that could that could hurt Republicans. So does that not just set up the usual dynamic, which is that Donald Trump acts a certain way and talks a certain way and creates a certain impression of what's going on and at the same time is signaling people in some other way, whether you're talking about China or you're talking about North Korea or you're talking about Europe and the G7, 
that he is open for business and that ultimately he will make a deal and he will keep this from being such a net negative for farmers, for businesses in the United States that use steel and aluminum, that in the long run, they're going to come out ahead as well. But in the short run, what's important is to go on television, as you say, giving the finger to Europe. I mean, I think, though, trade is one of these very complicated issues that doesn't entirely cut across party lines. I was just out in eastern Ohio, western Pennsylvania, looking at the story of a very unusual steel mill. Its actually parent company is a Russian, it's a Russian company-owned steel mill. And it's one of these strange scenarios where I met so many people who were Donald Trump supporters, voted for Donald Trump, and long story short, because this company imports its raw steel before, you know, melting it down into these coils, it's being hit by the 20 percent tariff. And these guys are telling me, you know, yes, I voted for him. And yes, I think tariffs are good because I've seen so many mills just move away from this area. But I didn't know it would affect our mill, right? Because we're in this era of global trade where things are complicated. You can have a foreign company that employs over 700 workers in western Pennsylvania. And to these guys, that's an American company. Surely, surely. And and the car manufacturers who are making cars in the United States that are called things like Toyota or BMW, (laughs) uh, they think that they're American workers and that they're working for an American company. You know, on this issue of trade, there was news that came out this morning from the Commerce Department that was very fascinating. There is a giant Chinese telecom company, ZTE, that has agreed now to pay a $1 billion fine and to allow the U.S. to more closely inspect the company in exchange for the U.S. lifting sanctions on the company. And I found this super fascinating. I have to actually have <laughs> very the ZTE off-brand. Commerce Department. <laughs> very <laughs> off-brand for Donald Trump. He even had tweeted about ZTE that we're losing too many jobs in China. All of a sudden, he wanted to make China great again. So what happened? What happened was um, ZTE was fined and sanctioned because it violated American sanctions on selling certain kinds of military equipment or equipment that could be used for military purposes to Iran and North Korea. So this is about as as bedrock a Donald Trump policy as you can get. Also, ZTE was considered to be a national security threat because the Defense Department and other um, parts of the intelligence community thought that some of their phones could be used as listening devices. Um, So they were sanctioned, they were fined, and they were about to go out of business. And then, um, you know, Donald Trump, who really depends on the leader of China, Xi, for his plans to put sanctions on North Korea, he decided to make a deal. So now you have this incredible contrast. They're letting ZTE off easier while they are putting tariffs on steel and aluminum from our allies. And this already has gotten pushback in Congress. Uh, Marco Rubio, Republican senator from Florida, tweeted today, I can assure you with 100% confidence that ZTE is a much greater national security threat than steel from Argentina or Europe. Hashtag very bad deal. So, so, so talk to us a bit about this, because to Mara's point, we have already begun to see reaction from members of Congress suggesting that ZTE poses a pretty severe national security threat. So this is all happening at a really interesting time. And going into next week, we could see the Senate take what might be since 
President Trump has been president, the most confrontational votes towards his presidency. Two groups of competing bipartisan senators have already announced plans uh, to introduce amendments to uh, the National Defense Bill. The National Defense Bill is an annual piece of legislation, generally very bipartisan, that outlines uh, sort of just the the broad Pentagon policies for the year. But... It has the timing has just worked out that this is the perfect vehicle to have a debate over ZTE and trade. So there's one group of senators uh, that plan to introduce an amendment on ZTE that basically puts the brakes on this deal and says that it can't move forward until Congress has decided the defense priorities for the country. So can I just pause you right there? Is that something that Congress can do when the Commerce Department, when the executive branch actually forms this you know, deal and a lifts, lifts the sanctions? Does Congress have the ability to slow the president's role there? They can. Okay. You know, but, but it would take, you know, and the administration can fight them on this. And this is why I'm saying it has the potential to be very confrontational. But on the ZTE amendment is Marco Rubio, as Mara alluded to. Susan Collins of Maine is on it as well. Tom Cotton of Arkansas is one of the Republicans on this. So that also shows you ideologically that not everyone who really supports Trump on Capitol Hill is behind him on this ZTE thing. On the other end, on the tariffs addressing Mexico, Canada, and the EU, which also has bipartisan opposition on the Hill, another group of bipartisan senators led by Bob Corker of Tennessee and Pat Toomey of Pennsylvania, they're both Republicans, uh, would basically require the president to seek approval from Congress if he intends to impose any tariffs citing national security concerns. The problem a lot of senators have is they don't see Mexico and Canada and the EU as national security threats. So the bipartisan interest in the Senate to kind of rein in the presidency on these two fronts is really interesting. Now, I don't know if they'll get the votes, but we haven't really seen a really robust debate in the Senate questioning the president's decision making. Even if this got to President Trump's desk, presidents aren't inclined to sign legislation (laughs) that curbs their own power. Right. Like they know know this. Tom Cotton, to me, is the biggest indicator here. Tom Cotton is about as Trumpy a senator as you can get. But he understands that this ZTE thing, this is not Trump's brand. This is totally off brand to do something nice for a Chinese company that violated our sanctions against North Korea and Iran. That is really off brand. Okay, so we'll have a lot to look forward to next week around trade and whether or not Congress can even potentially limit the president's power there. Um, Mara, I know you've got to jet. So goodbye. But thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back to talk immigration. Support for NPR Politics and the following message come from Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Rocket Mortgage gives you confidence when it comes to buying a new home or refinancing your existing home loan. With Rocket Mortgage, you can apply simply and understand all the details so you can mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash NPR Politics. Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSConsumerAccess.org number 3030. Hey, it's Guy Raz here, host of How I Built This, and I have some very exciting news to share. We are hosting our first ever How I Built This One Day Summit, sponsored by American Express. You'll have a chance to hear from and interact with some of the world's most inspiring entrepreneurs and founders, like Airbnb's Joe Gebbia, Katrina Lake of Stitch Fix, John Zimmer of Lyft, and many, many more. We'll have breakout sessions with experts and guides, and the summit will be a chance for you to meet other innovators and builders. The How I Built This Summit will take place on October 16th at San Francisco's Yerba Buena Center for the Arts. You can go to npr.org summit to find out more and to get your tickets. 
We're back, and we've got one of our White House reporters, Aisha Roscoe, with us now. Hey, Aisha. Hey. So uh, we do need to admit that this part of the podcast was recorded a couple of hours earlier than our first segment. Uh, so we are doing a little bit of time travel right now. Time shift. And exactly. And Aisha, can you do the honors and tell us what time it is right now? Yes, I am sitting in the NPR White House booth right now, and it is 12.42 p.m. Things may have changed after this. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Ron was like eyeing his watch at the same time just to verify your time check. Because well, I, I have a hard time with time, so <laughs> <laughs> I need backup. All right. Well, we are in the studio right now because, Sue, House Republicans just got out of a rare multiple hour meeting on immigration. And, and there's been a lot of infighting, it seems, between moderate and more conservative Republicans about whether or not the House should bring up any immigration legislation for a vote this year, you know, particularly that it's a midterm election year. D- did we get any resolution on any of that today? A little bit. What what we do know is that not much has changed in that if Republicans had an immigration bill that they could pass with Republican votes, they would have done it by now. And they are still in sort of a quest for what has been described to me as a unicorn bill hmm. that could somehow please both the conservative and moderate wings of the Republican Party. What's so interesting about this debate is we know we're going to have a House floor fight over immigration this month, but it is so rare, especially in the House, for essentially the rank and file to take over the floor and to force the hand of party leaders. The House, by design, is a top-down, leadership-driven, majority-driven institution. Sue, you just mentioned leaders. We actually have a clip of tape from uh, Speaker Ryan. This was just today, right after the meeting let out. We just had a very productive conference meeting uh, in the House Republican Conference to discuss solutions to our broken immigration system. Members were very engaged, and it's clear that there are a lot of areas of consensus. I'm pleased that members on all sides of our conference are engaging directly to find a solution. So when leaders say that a meeting's been productive, but then they can't tell you what the meeting produced, (laughs) the meeting wasn't very productive. (laughs) I also feel like his take on that was very different than the take that I'd been seeing about the meeting. Was it actually productive? What he is told reporters after the meeting is what they think that they have a loose agreement on is to try and write a bill that goes back to the four pillars that had been outlined by President Trump earlier this year when the Senate tried and failed to pass an immigration bill. Again, if that bill could have passed the Senate or Congress, they would have voted on it already. But it seems like from the leadership perspective, they are making a decision that they'd like to at least try to have a House vote on something President Trump supports. Okay, real quick, Ron, can you actually just walk us through what those four pillars are? Sure, sure. The president wants, number one, a path to citizenship for the 1.8 million people who are eligible for deferred action for childhood arrivals. Uh, they, this would include all the people that uh, we have been referring to as dreamers. Uh, number two, of course, the president would also like border security measures, including a $25 billion commitment to fully fund building a wall on the Mexican border. And then number three, the president said we should end the diversity visa lottery program. Uh, This has been a controversial part of the immigration law. Uh, It has obviously brought in a lot of people who are enormously productive, and it's also brought in a couple of people who have caused problems. The president has focused on it. And then fourth and finally, restrictions on family-based immigration so that a spouse can come in, uh, minor children can be brought in, but not siblings or fiancés or kids over the age of 21. 
And in the, adding to the drama of this is these moderates who have been working with Democrats have a little pocket ace in these negotiations. They've been working on something called a discharge petition, which if they get 218 signatures on it, and right now they have 215, although again, this may have changed by the time you hear this, then they can force the hand of the House to vote on immigration legislation. Now, the reason why party leaders don't like just discharge petitions is it's basically... I always describe it as sort of the inmates taking over the prison. It, it overrules party leaders and their ability to control the floor. But it would allow for votes on multiple immigration proposals, sort of a choose your own immigration adventure on that floor of the House so everybody could kind of cast a vote on the bill that they support. If they can't get a consensus bill, the moderates are still saying they will move forward with that discharge petition, even as Paul Ryan and Kevin McCarthy and everyone else is saying, please don't do this. So is it fair to say that the productiveness of the meeting today, from the standpoint of the speaker and the majority leader, is just that they've gotten the discharge petition pushed off a bit so that it isn't an imminent threat to them? Maybe they've bought a little more time? That was the posturing of leadership. I am not as confident as they are that members are going to hold off on this because they have been asking their members not to sign and not to sign. And we are very, very close. And I think if if these rank and file who want these votes, if they don't feel like they're actually going to get a bill, you know, they're only three signatures away. And I think they've made a smart leverage play, right? They're so close that they really do have a, sort of a pressure campaign against leadership, which we don't really get to see. This doesn't really happen very often. And do they have all the Democrats on board at this point? More or less. I think it's like single digits of Democrats who have not supported the discharge petition. But Sue, is, is turning as if they went ahead with that discharge petition, does that really turn it over to the Democrats? Or would it just allow everyone, as you said, to kind of vote? vote on what they think is best? Like, does it or does the discharge petition really give power to the Democrats? The fear is, and this has always been the problem with immigration, the votes exist in Congress to pass immigration legislation, period. But the only way you get that passed is by cutting a deal that brings half the Democrats on board and half the Republicans on board. And President Trump and party leaders just don't want to do that. That is not the bill that they want to write. That is not the deal they want to cut. But even if they do pass something, I mean, to you, Aisha, it seems like the president has very clearly outlined what he will and will not actually sign. And we've seen, you know, Mitch McConnell say he doesn't even want to bring up anything that the president will not be on board with. Yes, the president has made clear he has, as, as you outlined those those four pillars, that's what he laid out. And as Sue said, there hasn't been support for that. But one thing that President Trump has said at a a rally in Tennessee recently, he said that he feels like immigration is a great issue for Republicans. Mm. And he thinks that ahead of the midterms, this is something they need to focus on. Gosh, I find that such interesting political strategy because you can look at poll after poll. You can look at what Google trends are showing and you don't see immigration near the top. We saw it at the top in 2016. Now I consistently see health care at the top. So I don't know exactly why he thinks it's a winning strategy. Well, because it won for him. Yes. And, and that's how he judges what is a winning strategy. He says the Democrats are are bad on policy when it comes to immigration. So I think that if he can characterize it as these Democrats, they're caring more for criminals and people coming over here illegally than they care for citizens. And we're trying to protect you. Our laws are horrible. We're trying to fix it. The Democrats won't let us. He feels like that's that's something that Republicans, uh, that is a message that will stick with voters. If you choose your issues to emphasize on the basis of what kind of reaction they get from a crowd 
like the crowd in Nashville or the other crowds that President Trump attracts wherever he goes, that is going to give you a very specific and perhaps distorted view Mm -hmm. of what is overall going to appeal to the greatest number of voters in November. Can we talk politics real quick? Because I am so intrigued, Sue, that this is all coming up just months before a midterm election. I don't exactly understand why anyone in the House would want to do this. My understanding is when you look at public opinion polling, there's a pretty clear mandate that most of the public wants a pathway to legalization for these dreamers. Even you'll see a majority of Republican voters say they want that. So what is the benefit in bringing this up right now? Well, I think you have to look at sort of who sparked this recent round of immigration wars. And it was a number of House Republicans who do come from districts, and there aren't as many as there are Democrats, but there are a significant number of them, who do have uh, Hispanic populations in their districts, who have more diverse districts. And, you know, remember House races are fought, you know, one by one by one by one. Yeah. And and in this orbit of races, I think there's a couple of lawmakers that we focused a lot on. Um, one is Carlos Cobello. He's a Republican from Florida. Hillary Clinton won his congressional district. You know, almost half of his popu- of the population of his district or close to it was foreign born or has a member of their family that was. And this is the identity issue of his district. So... That's where we are, and it is a difficult position for the Republican Party, which has had a schism over immigration now for a long time. There is a real division among Republicans and among different kinds of Republicans as to how to proceed on the immigration issue. Because even with the president, uh, his pillars, there were some conservatives who were critical of the what the president laid out. And they felt like he was doing amnesty and that he, he went too far with uh, trying to allow or, or trying to allow uh, some of these people who are here to get citizenship. And we were just talking about dreamers, right? In the yes. president's pool. Gosh. Well, I feel like this entire debate hits really at a perennial question that it seems like we are constantly debating in our politics. And that's, you know, who gets to be an American? What does it mean to be an American? And we actually saw that same question, I feel, about Americanness pop up earlier this week on a totally different topic, and that was the NFL. So let us shift gears for a bit and talk about that. The Philadelphia Eagles were supposed to visit the White House this week. It is a typical celebration that happens when you win the Super Bowl. You get to meet the president, you give him a jersey, you take a few photos. It is a fairly apolitical moment. But at the last second, President Trump canceled the party. I mean, he legit uninvited the team. Uh, So Aisha, what is going on? Well, at first, President Trump said that, that the Eagles were uninvited. They There was supposed to be a celebration of them this week. He said they were uninvited because they were sending a smaller group of players because they were upset that he demands that people stand for the national anthem. Uh, after that was said, uh, people looking into this said, well, the Eagles didn't have anyone during regular season or postseason that was kneeling during the national anthem, which has been President Trump's issue. And so there, there was a question of, OK, so how is this about the anthem? And then the White House says that the Eagles tried to reschedule, but they knew that the president would be out of town. So the, so basically the White House was trying to say that this was some type of stunt or that the Eagles were acting in bad faith. And, and so ultimately it didn't happen. We ended up having this celebration of America. Right? Celebration of the American flag, I heard. It was cele- it was a celebration of America, but it, it was um, not a long celebration. It was about, uh, I would say, about 15 minutes. 
Wow. <laughs> it America involved, did not get a lot of did not get a lot of love that day. No, it was like uh, President Trump. He talked for a few minutes. They played "God Bless America." They played the national anthem, of course, uh, and they played I think "America the Beautiful," mm. and that was it. And then Good music the, selection, the, the, <laughs> and the president left. So I, I think ultimately. It gave President Trump a a chance to once again talk about this issue of standing for the flag. And let's also remember that the NFL in recent weeks has caved basically to the president and his demands that no players be allowed to go on the field and kneel during the national anthem. So he they struck a deal where players were told if you can't stand with your hand over your heart throughout the national anthem, you should stay in the locker room until it's over and then come back out on the field for the game. Uh, that was essentially what the president wanted them to do and they agreed to it and some of the NFL owners at the time warned This is not going to appease the president. This issue is not going to go away. And if there is another opportunity for the president to thwack us on this particular issue and say you are not being sufficiently loyal to the United States, he'll probably take it. And it didn't take very long. And and he did. So and even with this, he said you, you can't go to the locker room. So so he's saying that even that policy is not enough. I, I do want to say I think that what gets lost in this at times is that the players who did kneel, and it wasn't the Eagles, they say that they are kneeling not to be disrespectful to the flag or not to uh, be, certainly not to be disrespectful to the troops, but because they are concerned about police brutality. One thing I was so intrigued about in this whole sort of back and forth is that the White House put out a statement where it said the Eagles team decided to, quote, abandon their fans. So you're from Pennsylvania, so I'm going to assume you can speak on behalf of all Philadelphia folks. Happy to. (laughs) But is that true? I mean, does the team have the sense? Do you have any sense of if that's true? I have several points on this. Okay. I would also say, as uh, speaking for all Philly fans, if this was Thank an honest you. conversation, yes. <laughs> I would be able to curse a lot more in this podcast, but I'll try to keep it uh, family-friendly listening. Um One point I think is worth making again when we talk about the Eagles specifically is they were a team that no player kneeled during the last season. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the interesting dynamics of the president sort of suggesting that they weren't supporting patriotism is that they as a team, which made a decision that they weren't going to do that. So I would say in some ways what happened this week at the White House was the perfect ending to the last NFL season in that it culminated with a Super Bowl with the New England Patriots versus the Philadelphia Eagles. And if you are an NFL fan and played, paid attention to sort of the, the sports narrative of that season, it was largely seen as Trump's America versus the non-Trump Hold America. Hold up. Are you saying that the Patriots are Trump's America? Because uh, the Patriots owner, Bob Kraft and Tom Brady, yes, were sort of seen as the true. owner and the player who were the most aligned with Trump and had spoke highly of them and met with them. You know, Brady had the Make America Great Again hat in his locker room. And the Phillies or the Philadelphia Eagles were like the wokest team in the league that they talked a lot. So many of their players are involved in social justice. Uh, Malcolm Jenkins, who who Aisha talked about, uh, is known for doing ride alongs with the Philly police. He visits prisons. Uh, Other members have donated their salaries. Mm. They never kneeled. They kind of made like social justice uh, part of the, the identity of their team and was supported by their owner, Jeff Lurie, who uh, I think also makes sense for why the White House canceled this, because Lurie was quoted earlier this year calling the Trump presidency disastrous. Hmm. So it was sort of seen as like the teams that embodied the cultural divide we have in our country right, All right now. You make a compelling argument. And that the Phillies, the Eagles, who have never won a modern Super Bowl, ultimately won. 
you know, go Eagles. And <laughs> they were seen as the underdog in the league. And they kind of embraced this, I would say, uh, grievance or victim mentality <laughs> that we know well, that they, nobody believed in us. We could never do this. And there was a real, uh, we get no respect vibe to their victory. And that was, you know, I was at their victory day parade in Philadelphia. And that they joked about it there. So then also then being uninvited by the president is the end of this is like the perfect ending to this mm. very the narrative of what happened in the Super Bowl season this year. It doesn't sound very much as though the Eagles abandoned their, their fans. fans. No. And also I feel like Eagles fans will always pick the Eagles over any president. Oh, wow. <laughs> it doesn't Extreme matter what loyalty. your party affiliation is. I think that's right. As long as the Eagles continue to win Super Bowls, there is no doubt where the loyalty lies here. And, and I think with Trump, uh, with President Trump, uh, this whole thing of uninviting people, he does this. He did this with the Warriors as well, uh, the Golden State Warriors, when they won the uh, when they won the NBA Finals. He said that they they had said they probably weren't coming, and he said. Ah. You're uninvited. <laughs> so, I feel like that's so tacky, though. Would you do that? Do you actually, like, have a party and then find out that the guest list isn't what you anticipated, so you just uninvite folks? Yes. Change the party? Because then, then you go, look, it's not that you don't want to be with me. I don't want to be with you. I do wonder if this is, like, part of a new trend, because as we're going right now through the uh, the basketball finals, and it's the Golden State Warriors versus the Cleveland Cavaliers, and there's already a conversation there that whichever team wins, they're not going to want to come to the White House either. And it is interesting because these events have felt so apolitical, right? I mean, this is not something where these teams only went under a Democratic president in the past, right, or only a, under a Republican president. They just, they went. And yeah. it was sort of like this, it was this pageantry, right? It was a ceremony. It would be almost... I would, you know, like if we had a monarchy, it's like the role of what the monarch would do. It's very apolitical. And I would say that these were always opportunities for a president to be very bipartisan, that a lot of times, whatever the team is, they would invite the congressional delegation and and people that work in government that are fans. And Mm -hmm. it it didn't really matter who you voted for. And it was you were allowed to have these sort of kumbaya moments at the White House that celebrate American greatness in some way. Uh, On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, can't let it go. Hey, y'all. Sam Sanders here. So there are a lot of stories in the news lately about the right to free speech. But most people are surprised to learn where that right exists and where it does not. We get into all of this with the former president of the ACLU. This week on It's Been a Minute from NPR. And we're back. And we're going to end the show like we always do with what we cannot let go this week, politics or otherwise. But first, we've got to talk about the one woman the Internet seems to never be able to let go, and that is Kim K. Last week, Kim Kardashian lobbied the president. She wanted a pardon for a woman whose name is Alice Marie Johnson. Alice had been in prison for more than 20 years because of a first-time drug conviction. Uh, Here's what Kim told Mike.com about why she was sticking up for her. I'm just at a different place in my life, so I thought, well, if I could put the money into a shopping spree which sounds ridiculous, to save someone's life and do that once a year, then that would make me just my heart fuller. Seems like from one celebrity to the other, right? I mean, Kim K got results. Yes, and, and Sylvester Stallone got a posthumous pardon for a uh, legendary boxer, Jack Johnson, a couple of weeks ago. So it, it definitely doesn't hurt and probably helps a lot to have a celebrity in your corner. There is some conflict when you look at where the administration's Justice Department is going and what uh, President Trump did in this case. 
But for Alice Marie Johnson, this is really a lifesaver for her. If there's no parole uh, for federal prisoners, so if she didn't get this commutation, she would have died in prison. I, I feel better knowing that Kim K's heart is a little fuller and feels a little fuller. And I'm sure that uh, Alice Marie Johnson feels much better about the prospects for her future than she did. Uh, there's a great deal of context around this. There was a policy change that was made by the Trump administration that actually made it more difficult to address the inequities of sentencing that had led to this extraordinarily long sentence for a first-time conviction for this particular defendant. And there's a certain irony then in having the president come along and say, oh, in this case, that looks unfair. So I'm going to commute that one sentence. All right. And now time for our own Can't Let It Goes. Uh, Sue, would you like to go first? Embattled EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt, who has had maybe more controversies than any figure in the Trump administration to date who is under multiple internal government investigations for abuses of power and abuses of taxpayer dollar. The latest twist in it this week that was released in documents via congressional Democrats on an oversight committee, he had one of his top aides attempt to purchase a used mattress from the Trump International Hotel in Washington, D.C. A used mattress. That's it, guys. I can't let that go. What Did, did we ever find out why he wanted a used one? Was it just a cheapness or was there some specific use that he felt he could get out of it? There is an actual transcript of the conversation with committee investigators and this aide. And you can tell that the investigators are like, so wait, back to the mattress. What did he want to do with the used mattress? And she's like, I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer. She only knew that she had made the request and she had to call the hotel. She she was not able to say whether he ever purchased the also, used mattress. Also, can I just say, as somebody who like really loves to buy stuff on like Craigslist and stuff, mattresses are one thing I refuse to buy <laughs> that are used. Especially from no. a hotel. Yeah, a hotel. You know, it's not like your like... sister's getting rid of a mattress and yeah. you want to, and she, you know, it's our guest room mattress and you're like, yeah, I'll take that. A hotel mattress? <laughs> Especially for someone whose other controversies include things and like only rich, wanting dude. to fly first class, <laughs> only wanting like top, like wanting to soundproof his office, like doing all these things that are super A-list bougie decisions. And then wanting a used mattress is just, I can't, I can't rationalize it. Is it possible that this was supposed to go into that condo that he had under the rather hinky arrangement with the lobbyist, et cetera, et cetera, and that he was replacing something there and thereby did not want to spend a lot of his own money because he wasn't going to sleep on it himself? He was, the the aide was actually asked what he intended to do with his mattress. She said she simply did not know what it was intended for. Well, how many things can a mattress be? She didn't want to ask. Who who wants to ask? Who wants to know? No. (laughs) All right. Who wants to go next? I'll go next. I would like to uh, introduce a bit of an upper into the podcast, which is usually the opposite of my role. I I can't let go of the fact that Washington, D.C. is obsessed with something right now besides politics. And it is the Washington Capitals. Yes. The hockey team that is on the brink of winning its first Stanley Cup. And uh, they are ahead three to one over the Las Vegas Golden Knights. Confess, I didn't even know that, Ron. We we will not get into all of the wonderful contrasts between Washington, D.C. and Las Vegas, Nevada, or any of the shared characteristics between the big casino on the East Coast and the big casino know in the mm. west we'll just we'll, we'll just say it's been a delicious series the caps are up 
3-1, to one, and if they should win, it would be the first time that a Washington sports team, the name of which we can actually use in our podcast, has won a title since the 1970s. Wow. That's a long, that long is a time. long drought. But we could have a Stanley Cup, and it could happen very soon. My favorite thing about this is I love the hashtag. Hashtag all caps. All caps. And that. it's all yes. and it's in all caps. I, just I think love it's very clear. that. Yes. yes. Um, all right, I'm going to go next. Mine is not such an upper like yours, Ron. Um, it is Ramadan these days, uh, which if you don't know means that Muslims fast from dawn till dusk, uh, which may be why you hear my stomach growling in the back a little bit. Um, and when you break your fast, you have these big dinners called iftar dinners. And so the White House for the past couple of decades has been having these annual iftar dinners. Uh, They invite a number of American Muslims to come and celebrate, eat, feast with the president. But last year, Donald Trump broke with this tradition. He nixed the annual dinner. This year, guys, he brought it back. It was last night. And he had this dinner, but there was just one thing missing from his dinner any actual American Muslims. No way. <laughs> the, White House, the White House did not release the actual guest list, but according to a number of reports, no one could find any actual American Muslims who were invited. They seem to have invited a group of diplomats. There were about like around 50 people, just random diplomats from Muslim countries. But, but I saw this interview with Trump's number one Muslim supporter. I don't know if you guys remember, but there was this guy at the Republican National Convention who's Muslim who gave the benediction. He He uh, leads this group called American Muslims for Trump. And he has someone interviewed him. He said he was very disappointed that he did not receive an invitation, given that he is a big Trump supporter. But uh, long story short, guys, the White House iftar dinner is back just without any American Muslims, it seems. Well, and I can say that I was here yesterday at the White House and they were grilling like lamb and all this stuff. It smelled so good. At first, oh. I just smelled fire and I thought this isn't good. But then it's <laughs> you could smell the barbecue. Oh, my goodness. It smelled oh, wow. so good. So their menu seems to have been on point. Yes, the menu, it smelled delicious. So he did invite... <laughs> Muslims from Other the diplomatic countries. corps, just not any American Muslims. It is. That's yeah. what it seems like. And But, you know, like to that point, it, it's that is very interesting. And I don't want to like belabor the point. But to me, you know, the the president has, I think, really created, I would say, fissures in terms of how he views certain groups. Right. Mm-hmm. And Muslims would be one of these groups where they're constantly viewed through the lens of foreign policy, being others, being not Americans. So, you know. To me, it raised these really serious questions of like historically, like Bill Clinton, George W. Bush, Barack Obama, they always made a point of this being an American Muslim tradition. And it sort of flips it on its on its head. Okay, so what I can't let go of this week is the War of 1812. (laughs) That's a long time ago. It's a long time, but go with me now. So CNN reported and some other people have reported that President Trump was on this tense call with uh, Justin Trudeau, the prime minister of Canada. They're upset because the U.S. has imposed these tariffs on imports of aluminum and steel from a lot of countries, including Canada, and they say it's a national security issue. Canada is upset because they're like, how can we be a national security threat? And so President Trump apparently said, according to this, we haven't confirmed, NPR hasn't confirmed it. He said, didn't you guys burn down the White House? (laughs) Referring to the War of 1812. And so I want to take this kind of out of the political realm and out of the issue of Canada 
couldn't have actually burned down the White House in the War of 1812 because it didn't become a nation until 1867. So I'm going to take it out of that and say, how long do you hold a grudge? When, when do you let something go? <laughs> it's setting aside. But it, but it was aside. the Brits, right? No, it was not the it Canadians. Was the I was, was just like, Brits. let me just check my history. You were It, it was the Brits. And if he wants to bring this up with Theresa May, I have no problem with that if he wants to do that. But it does seem like a long so time. So it's to acceptable hold for you to hold it that, that long of a grudge, but, you think, with Theresa no, May? Only if you're holding it against the right country. <laughs> <laughs> they did make us a colony as well, you know. Well, yeah, yeah. So it was the British who did it and not the Canadians. But I guess what he's saying is, look, you never know where the threat could come from. So you Canadians, you're not innocent. That's very generous, Aisha. (laughs) I'll give it to you. I, for one, am glad we have a president ready to confront the Canadian threat. (laughs) All right. Well, we are going to let that go right there. And guys, every week we talk about what we cannot let go. And our Twitter feeds and inboxes are often filled up with what you all cannot let go. So we want to try something new. We would like to ask you if over the next week there is something that you just cannot let go of. If you record it, you can just take your little cell phone, record it on your iPhone, or if you don't use an iPhone, an Android, and email it to us at nprpolitics at npr.org, and maybe you'll hear yourself on next week's episode. That is a wrap for today. I'm Asma Khalid, political reporter. I'm Susan Davis. I cover Congress. I'm Aisha Roscoe, and I cover the White House. And I'm Ron Elming, editor-correspondent. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 